test. Amen. Congregation, let me tell you what a blessing it is to hear your voices lifted in song. Well, at this time, I'd like to dismiss the children. It'll be preschool through first grade to make your way to Miss Amy over at the door. So if you have registered children, you can make your way to Miss Amy. For the rest of us here, I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to John chapter 21. John chapter 21, verses 20 through 25, believe it or not, this is our last message out of the Gospel of John, our journey that began three years ago and never thought we'd get to the end. Well, it's here today, John 21. As you're turning there, I wanted to give you a, another praise report in Thanksgiving. Emma continues to do well. Um, despite all the pollen and allergens that are in the air, uh, she is still breathing well. Her lungs are staying clear, so continue for your prayers. In therapy, they feel like she's getting a little bit stronger each time. I've used an analogy that my family is quite sick of, but I feel like it describes our situation well. We're running a marathon measured in inches, and so it's slow, but we're moving forward. And so I praise God for that. I draw your attention to John chapter 21, verses 20 through 25. Hear the word of the Lord. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the, the brothers that, the disciple who was not, that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, as we come to this time of worship, this time dedicated to proclamation, we ask you, Father, to open our hearts just as we have opened your word. Father, work within us. Make our hearts receptive this morning to the message you have for each of us. And Lord, I pray that in this you will be glorified and that we can truly continue to say you are all to us. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. The comparison game is a game that comes very naturally to us. We don't have to be taught how to play it. It's a game that has been played throughout history. Cain and Abel played the comparison game. Judah, Levi, Simeon, and their brothers played the comparison game against Joseph. Saul even played the comparison game with David. The comparison game is when we look at other people and we begin to compare our lives 
to their lives, our circumstances to their circumstances, our problems to their problems, our stuff with their stuff. Now, sometimes the comparison game makes us feel better about ourselves. We may have our struggles, but we're not as bad as they are. And pride begins to slowly rise in our hearts. But other times the comparison game makes us feel very insecure and inadequate. And our hearts begin to become weighed down with the feeling of inferiority. Now as Christians, we play the comparison game with a theological twist. We see what God is doing in the lives of other people and we wonder, God, why aren't you doing that in our lives? Sometimes it leaves us feeling like we must be worse sinners than that other person. And sometimes it may even makes us angry at God. God, why aren't you giving me what they have? Why are the breaks falling to them? Why are they so lucky and I'm not? And at worst, it causes some to doubt the very existence of God. Peter is on the verge of playing the comparison game with the beloved disciple. Jesus has just told Peter that Peter will die the death of a martyr. That when he is older, his hands will be bound and he'll be led in a way that he does not want to go. And as Peter is processing that information that the road he is on in following Jesus will lead to his death, he looks behind them. And he sees the beloved disciple. We are told that this beloved disciple is the one who had a very intimate relationship with Jesus. And he had leaned back against Jesus at the dinner recorded in John chapter 13. And it was during that dinner that, that this disciple asked Jesus, who will betray you? Peter didn't go directly to, G to Jesus. He went through the beloved disciple now, I believe at this point, playing the comparison game is not Peter's concern. I think Peter is asking a genuine question. Lord, what about him? What's going to happen to him? Because from what we can see in the gospel, apparently Peter and the beloved disciple were very close friends. Peter asked the beloved disciple to put the question to Jesus as to who would betray him. Peter followed the beloved disciple the house of the high priest, when Jesus was arrested. Peter and the beloved disciple were apparently together when Mary arrived with the news that the tomb was empty because they took out running together and the beloved disciple outran Peter. In verse 7 of this very chapter, when the disciples go out fishing, apparently the beloved disciple is right next to Peter. So I don't think Peter wanted to start out playing the comparison game with the beloved disciple. But Jesus saw the danger. Many have wondered why this is even included in the, the scripture. And I think it's included because the early church had struggles with the comparison game. Some said, I'm following Peter. Some said, I'm following Paul. Others said, I'm following Apollos. And in fact, in Philippians chapter 2, there's a warning where he says, don't do anything from envy or selfish ambition, but seek how you can serve one another. This issue of comparison has always been a struggle in the 2,000 years the church has existed. So here is Jesus. 
And Jesus puts a stop to the game before it even begins. Look at the three words he says to Peter. You follow me. Often we're like Peter. It's not our intent to play the comparison game. We may look at Facebook posts to catch up on what friends are doing, or we look at TikTok or Instagram just for a laugh. But often what starts out innocently turns quickly into the comparison game. Years ago, we played the game by looking through the curtains in our kitchen and seeing what was being driven by our neighbor. How in the world do they afford that? Abner, come look at this. Years ago, newspapers actually had a section called the gossip column where you kept up with everything everybody else was doing. In the 1980s, we watched on our television sets as Robin Leach introduced us to lifestyles of the rich and famous and we wondered why we were so poor and infamous. It fed our appetite for comparison. But today, the comparison game is played on a scale once unimagined. Whatever social media platform you use, Facebook, TikTok, Twitter, Instagram, now we are introduced to strangers from all over the world and these strangers seem to have the perfect life. The reason we can't help ourselves from playing the comparison game is because the basis of the game is nothing less than idolatry. And our hearts are drawn to idols. You see, the comparison game is really another name for coveting. To covet means we want something that others have because we believe once we get that, whether it be position, money, stuff, whatever it is, then, then we'll be truly happy and fulfilled. Colossians 3.5 gives a very strong warning about coveting. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and look at the next phrase. Put to death covetousness, which is idolatry. And idolatry will always lead to disillusionment. Because once we get what we think we needed, we find it really doesn't satisfy. It will lead to destruction and even death. And this disillusionment, destruction, and death comes in the form of envy, anger, and guilt. Joseph Epstein is a writer for the Washington Monthly. He wrote about this topic and he said, Of the seven deadly sins, only envy is no fun at all. There's research that backs him up. Psychologists have found that envy decreases life satisfaction and depresses well-being. Envy, in fact, is correlated with depression and neuroticism. And the hostility that envy breeds actually will make us physically sick. Recent research says that envy explains our complicated relationship with social media. Envy leads to destructive social comparison which decreases in happiness. Epstein goes on to say that envy makes us look ungenerous, mean, and small-hearted. Now, lest you think I'm just using preacher language, because I know us preacher types can use hyperbola to make points, lest you think I'm exaggerating, look at what Proverbs 14.30 says. A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. 
Envy will eat you up from the inside out. And often what drives the envy and what causes our bones to rot are three things. One is guilt. When we play the comparison game, guilt will result. We begin to feel guilty because we can't have what other people have. We can't provide for our families what other people provide for. In fact, there's a thing, a real thing called mom guilt. This happens when mothers look at social media or they talk with people and they see all the other things that, that the mothers are doing on, on, on Instagram. They see mothers taking pocket lint and knitting sweaters for their children and they wonder, why can't I do that? Or they take shoe boxes and make forts for their kids. Why am I such a failure? My child is going to rob banks because I can't do these things. And they end up feeling guilty, inferior. See, the comparison game feeds that. The comparison game thrives on this guilt just like mold thrives in the darkness. And guilt is always destructive. It makes our bones rot with anger and resentment. Simply put, we get mad because the other person seems to get all the breaks. And then deep down, we begin to complain that life isn't fair. We begin to resent the success of others. And we even do this within the church. When somebody shares a praise that something God has done, isn't it the truth that often on the outside we're going, yes, yes, praise God for you, but inside we're going, that's just not fair. God, why are you blessing them in that way and not me? Why have I been praying for this for so long and Lord, you've not answered, but for their prayers, you're answering. And we begin to rot from the inside out. Anger and resentment will slowly kill you. And it will destroy your soul. I mentioned this already, but I come back to it. Our bones will rot from feelings of failure. It's amazing how we can feel good about life until we see something that makes us feel not so good. Dr. Thomas DeLong is a professor at the Harvard Business School. Probably the most prestigious business school in the United States, if not the world. And he's noted a troubling trend among his students. He gives an example of this. He said a former student of his graduated 10 years ago and landed a wonderful job at a Fortune 500 company. She was extremely happy with her job until she got the alumni newsletter and learned that a fellow alumnus who was in the MBA program with her had just been named vice president at a Fortune 100 company. From that moment on, she could barely hold a conversation without complaining about her lack of attaining vice president status and that she's not working at a Fortune 100 company. Feeling like a failure when you have an MBA from Harvard working at a Fortune 500 company. The comparison game breeds that. So this morning I ask you, if you are tired of being eaten up from envy, if you are tired of feeling guilty because you don't measure up, if you're tired of being mad about the success of others, and if you are tired of feeling like a failure, then hear again the words of Jesus in verse 22. You follow me. Now I know that sounds simplistic. Sounds easy, doesn't it? Following Jesus. How do we do that? 
Following Christ and stop to stop playing the game of comparison means this, that first of all, we must focus on what is real and what will last. As a preacher and as a dad, I am prone to state the obvious. So allow me to do that now. We live in a world of images. They're all around us. But the images that we see, the video clips that we watch, are crafted and more than likely are manipulated. Even the clips where it is a natural selfie, which I understand is the, 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 the popular thing to do now. Let's see what life looks like without the makeup, without all the trappings. But you must understand that even the natural selfies, they are selected to approach to show what the person desires to show. Anytime a person is having their picture made or they know they are being videotaped, their behavior will change. My point is this, the images that we see and the lives that we covet are not real. We're coveting something that is a carefully crafted image. I call it the duck syndrome. It's like looking at a duck. You see, you look at a duck that's moving across a pond and that duck looks smooth. It's smooth sailing. And we think, man, that's what I want. I want to be that duck smooth sailing across the water. But when you look underneath the surface, what you see is that duck is paddling like crazy. The reality is that none of us has it together. Nobody, and I mean nobody, has the perfect life. Every one of us have our troubles, our struggles, our failures, and our problems. So recognize that when you compare yourself to someone else, you're comparing yourself to a mirage. You're envying something that's not real. And the solution to that is to focus our eyes upon Jesus, fix our eyes upon him, to pray that we will think as Christ thinks. Philippians 2 once again says, put aside envy, put aside any arguing, and have the mind of Christ in you, and humble yourself. Now the challenge is, how can we do that when we can't see him? You see, it's easy to focus on stuff. It's easy to focus on those pictures of our best friend who got that wonderful trip to Hawaii. God love her. How can we focus on something that we cannot see? Once again, to state the obvious, there are key elements of focusing on Christ. The first is the Word. The Word is where Jesus reveals who He is. We see Him in the Word. If we are not in the Word reading of Christ, we can't say we're following Christ. We worship together. We worship together as a means of safety rails to keep us focused upon the Lord, to know we are not alone, to know we can be real with one another. We don't have to deal with pretense. And in a community, we learn from one another. You see, this is where Satan works all too well. Sometimes fear of the comparison game stops us from looking at others to learn what it means to follow Jesus. Two times in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. He is saying, I'm following Jesus, so here is an example for you to follow. And we need those examples so we can say, that's what it looks like to value and grow in virtue. You see, that's what we should be seeking. Not the stuff of the world that fades away, but to ask, are we growing in virtue and character? Are we growing in compassion and kindness? In a word, are we growing to be like Christ as he is revealed in the scripture? Now, if we are to do those things, that means we must set Christ in front of us and must be careful of where our minds are focused, which means self-discipline. 
Now, I'm not up here to preach that social media is bad. There are good things about social media. It can help us communicate quickly, but it can also be very dangerous. So if you're serious about stopping the comparison game, what that means is that when you are looking at social media, whatever platform, and you begin to feel in your heart anger, resentment, and envy, you have to make the decision to stop, to turn it off. Now, I understand that doing that may be difficult because this is how our enemy will work. When you make that decision to say, okay, I'm starting to feel discontent, I'm starting to feel envious, so I'm going to turn it off, all of a sudden there is a fear that will begin to creep into your mind. Fear of missing out. Because if I'm not tuned into social media, I'm going to miss the newest, the latest, the fat. I'm going to miss what's popular. Well, let me reassure you that that will change in one hour. And at some point, you're going to have to ask yourself deep down, what is more important to you? Is following Christ and growing in compassion and virtue and character more important to you than knowing what's going on with some stranger that you don't know who's presenting a life that is probably not real? And at some point, you simply have to stop to make that decision. It also means this, that as we set our eyes upon him, we heed the counsel of Jesus. Look at what Jesus said to Peter. If it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. What that means is this. We have to follow Jesus without being fickle. I love how Jesus responds. Straight to the point. The language is pretty sharp. It has an edge to it. Basically, he says to Peter in verse 22, if it's my will for him to live, that's my will for him. Don't you worry about it. My mother used to have a saying where she said, I guess we'll file that under their business. That's what Jesus is saying to Peter. You file that under my business with the beloved disciple. You follow me. We have to set our minds to follow him. Now, this is what I mean by following without being fickle. Jesus has just told Peter that his discipleship is going to end in martyrdom. Peter's going to die, which tradition tells us Peter died at the hands of Nero being crucified upside down. Now, according to tradition, the beloved disciple, whether it was Lazarus or John, died of old age, more than likely in Ephesus. Peter's road led to death on a cross. The beloved disciples' road led to death by old age. Why did one have one road and one the other? I don't know. Adoniram Judson was a Baptist missionary who was called to Burma. When he began his ministry in Burma, he worked diligently. He buried a wife and children in Burma. He labored to translate the New Testament into Burmese. And everything was going well until the house that he housed his work burned to the ground, destroying everything. He worked for seven years before he saw one convert. George Whitfield stood in a cow field and preached to ten thousands and people responded in droves. Why did Judson struggle and Whitfield have success? I don't know. 
Jonathan Edwards, the famed preacher and perhaps the greatest theologian of the North American continent who preached the well-known sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Did you know he was forced out of his church? That's how his ministry ended. Kicked out of the pulpit. Charles Spurgeon pastored at the Metropolitan Tabernacle for 38 years. Never being removed. Why does the Lord lead one person down one road while he places another on a different road? I don't have the answer to that. But I do know this. No matter what road the Lord places you on, he is still the Lord. No matter what road God leads you down, he is still God. That does not change So the question we should be asking is not, why did this happen? The question we should be asking is, what would you have me do, Lord? What does obedience look like on the road that you have called me down? Don't waste your life comparing yourselves to others and miss what God is doing in your life and miss what he has called you to do because you're so worried about what you can't do. That's a wasted life. The Lord has gifted you, he has called you, and he has placed you on the road you're on according to his providence. Follow him obediently. And what that means is this, part of following Christ is learning contentment. This is the antidote to comparison-itis. To be content is to be satisfied. Now that's hard in this day and age because every advertisement you see, every ad you hear is telling you to be discontent. That you'll only be satisfied if you get this or buy that or get the latest and greatest. Contentment brings with it serenity. Hear the words of the Apostle Paul. He says, not that I'm speaking of being in need. I've learned to be, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Whatever situation. In fact, Paul goes on to say, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. He said, I know how to be poor. I know how to be rich. I know how to be a free man. I know how to be in jail. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. You know what that secret is? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You see, this verse is not just to be meant to be put on the back of a a tennis shoe before you go into the game. This is a verse that's talking about when the road you are on is hard, And it's difficult and you wonder why God, this brings us back to the reality that you will travel down that road based on the strength that God alone provides. And that will be enough. The truth is we may not be able to give our children everything that the world says we need to give them. But in the end that does not matter one bit. If you were giving your child love And teaching them compassion and teaching them Jesus, that's enough. That's enough. All other things will fade. You and I may never have all the stuff that we're told we have to have. We may never have the perfect life. But the truth is, if we have Christ, we've already got it. We've already got everything we need and we can follow him. So this morning I plead with you, stop playing the comparison game and focus on Christ. Will you bow with me? Heavenly Father, 
you alone know our hearts. You see behind the mask that we put on. Lord, you know at times where we are eaten up with envy, with anger, and resentment. And Father, we confess that to you this morning. We ask you, O Lord, to give us the minds of Christ. To help us to learn contentment. To help us to learn to focus on you. Give us the discipline. The discipline to know that when envy and resentment starts to rise in our hearts, we need to step away and refocus on you. Help us to learn to really rejoice with one another and to weep with one another. And I pray this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.